Greetings from Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church. During Sunday evening service, we had a momentary power outage. There will be a slight blip approximately six minutes into the message. This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 5. We'll be looking this evening at verses 1 through 31. Jeremiah 5, 1 through 31. For the sake of time, what I'd like to do instead of reading through the chapter is uh, read it as we proceed through it and study it. Uh, So before we turn our attention to God's Word, let's pray. Our Father, we come before Your Word. Father, we come humbly because this is Your truth, because this is Your Word. And Father, we pray that as we study the Scriptures tonight, that You would give us uh, clear minds in this late hour of the day. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, we would profit by our study of your word. Father, we are overwhelmed at your grace in communicating to us, not simply through the magnificence of creation, but through the clarity of your word. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the book of Genesis, uh, as Abraham Uh, stood looking over the city of Sodom, he enters into a bargaining session with the Lord over the city of Sodom. The Lord had uh, revealed to Abraham that Sodom was up for judgment. And Abraham, concerned about the city and certainly concerned about his nephew Lot, who lived in the city, came to the Lord and said, would the Lord destroy the city uh, for the sake of 50 righteous? Would he spare it if 50 righteous could be found? And the Lord said, yes. And you know what happened. Abraham whittles it down to 45 to venture on the Lord's patience. And the Lord says, yes, for 45, we'll spare the city. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What, what about 10? Would the Lord spare the city of Sodom for the sake of ten righteous men? And the Lord in his grace said, yes, for ten righteous men, I will spare the city of Sodom. And you know what happened. Sodom was destroyed by the Lord because it was so perversely, incorrigibly wicked that ten righteous men could not be found. Well, as we look at this passage before us this evening, we find something quite similar here, actually. Uh, Jerusalem is weighing in the balance here, and Jerusalem is more wicked than Sodom. That's right. Jerusalem was a more wicked city 
than Sodom. You have it from me, but let me give it to you from a higher authority. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughter have not done as you and your daughters have done. The Lord speaking to Jerusalem. And God's judgment had already fallen on Sodom. Jerusalem is more wicked than Samaria. Samaria, of course, became the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. Ezekiel 16.51, Samaria has not committed half your sins, the Lord says to Jerusalem. God's judgment had already fallen on Samaria. And despite Jerusalem's wickedness, God here proposes easier terms than he did with Sodom. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. The Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, for the sake of one righteous man, I will spare this city. Go look. Run here and there. Go through the squares of Jerusalem. Search up and down the streets and the alleys. Find me one man of righteousness. One man, he says, of truth that I may pardon her. And so Jeremiah sets out on his assignment with the fate of Jerusalem hanging in the balance. Now, as we look at this passage together, we can organize it for our study tonight under three categories. First of all, God's challenge, which we've just seen, laid down here for Jeremiah. Uh, and then in verses 14 through 19, God's judgment. And curiously, in verses 20 through 31, God's amazement. At the city. Now, Jeremiah has his mission, his challenge, uh, to find just one man who does justice, who seeks truth that I'm. So first of all, the challenge. Well, what is, what does Jeremiah find as he begins his search? Well, as he goes through the streets of Jerusalem, this is what he finds. In the first place, he finds no character. No character. Look at verses, uh, two and three. Though they say, as the Lord lives, Yet they swear falsely. Now, as the Lord lives was a was a uh, a vow, basically saying, as the Lord lives, as He exists, what I'm saying to you is true. Basically, calling on the Lord to be witness that they're telling the truth. Interestingly, that passage we read earlier in Ezekiel 16, the Lord, having no one higher than Himself to call upon, says, "As I live." Your sister Sodom and her daughter have not done as you and your daughters have done. Well, as Jeremiah goes out, what he finds among the people is they say, well, as the Lord lives, they call on the name of the Lord to secure the truth of what they're saying, but they swear falsely. So they're taking God's name in vain. They're breaking the commandment. Uh, we tend to think of using God's name as a profanity as violating the commandment, and in a sense it is. It's, it's, uh, it's a, an abuse of the name of God a blasphemous use of the name of God. But to take the name of God in vain means to call upon the Lord as witness and yet to tell falsehood. And that's exactly what they do. They say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. 
And so they've got this religious language, and yet there's no reality to it. Uh, look at verse 3. Oh, Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They refused to repent. So there's this religious talk with no reality to it. There's also suffering. God chastens them. God disciplines them. He brings these things against them. But what is the result? It doesn't break them. It doesn't soften them. It doesn't bring them to repentance. It merely hardens them. It makes them like rock. It makes them hard. They refuse to repent. And so as Jeremiah looks around, he sees no character. He sees people whose religion is talk without reality. People who, when they face God's chastening, do not break and repent, but only become more hardened against God. So no character, no leadership. Look at verse 4. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense. They do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. These are common people. They don't know what the Scriptures say. They don't understand these things, Jeremiah says. I'll go to the great, verse 5, and we'll speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they, all alike, had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. He goes to the leaders, the great people, the people who had studied, the, the religious leaders, the people who should know better. Surely they'll know. Well, Jeremiah says that they had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. The, the picture is that of, a, of an ox with its yoke, and it becomes wild and deliberately bucks against and throws off and breaks that yoke. So on the one hand, Jeremiah says you have the common people, the poor out here, who are sinning out of their ignorance, will go to those who should know better, and they are sinning out of willful defiance. They do know better. But willfully and purposefully, they throw off the yoke of God's law as they rebel and insist on their ways. And so a hint of justice, what happens to the ox that goes its own way, that wanders away from its due and proper paths? Verse 6, therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn to pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. What does Jeremiah find? It's pretty discouraging so far. He finds no character. He finds no leadership and righteousness. Even the leaders are willfully going their own way. He finds no restraint. Verse 7. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. Maybe a hint here literally to their children that they themselves are sinful and rebellious and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, provided everything they needed, took care of them, what happens? They committed adultery. They trooped the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. God said, I bless them, provide everything they need. And what happens? They become adulterers. And again, literal or figurative, certainly figurative in their false religion, their pagan religion, which did involve sexual practices, Baal, and those were Canaanite fertility religions that did involve actual sexual immorality and sin. But there's just this, this stampede. They trooped, they lined up, took a number to uh, go to the uh, houses of prostitution 
uh, just unbridled lust. And the Lord says in verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Jeremiah's looking, but he's not finding much to uh, call God's attention to. In fact, God says, Should I not judge people who live in this way? Experience the goodness of God, experience the chastening of God, uh, the, the abundance, and yet persist in their rebellion. And so um, the Lord says in verse 10, Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches. They're not the Lord's. Remember John 15, the vine, the branches. The Lord will lop off the unfruitful branches and cast them into the fire. Well, we have it right here. Strip away her branches. They're not the Lord's. For the house of Israel, the house of Judah, have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. What you have here in God's challenge, Jeremiah, to find one righteous man, he finds no character, no leadership, no restraint or self-control, and ultimately no clue. Look again at verse 12. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. In other words, they're just windbags. The word is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. In other words, may the, the, the prophecies of the prophets like Jeremiah fall upon their own heads, come upon them, the things that they say, because they're not going to happen. No disaster, no sword, no famine. God's not going to judge us. That sound familiar? Remember Second Peter, where he says people are going along saying, well, everything's just gone along the way it always has. And Peter says, wait, they, they forget that God did send a flood one time. They willfully forget that. Well, that's what you have here. God's not going to judge us. These prophets are just full of hot air. You know, may all their judgments come upon them. So no clue. That's the challenge. Jeremiah, go out and find me one righteous man, and for his sake I will spare the city. What does Jeremiah find? Well, no character, no leadership, no restraint, no clue. Pretty discouraging picture. And so then we come to a section here that describes God's judgment. Look at verse 14. God's judgment, first of all, uh, by his word, through his word. If that's the assessment of the prophets that the Lord has sent, just full of hot air, the message will come to nothing. Verse 14, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Fine. You think their words are just wind? Well, I'll make their, the word of the prophet fire, and the people are wood, and the word of God is going to come and breathe burning judgment on them. God's message, God's word, announces the judgment, but it's carried out through the instrument of his judge, judgment, verses 15 and 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver 
is like an open tomb. They're all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. And so the Lord has given the word of his judgment, the message. It's like a fire setting wood ablaze. The instrument by which that comes about, the Lord says, will be a foreign power. Again, not named at this point. Uh, We know in time that it was, in fact, the Babylonians, but not named. But a fierce army. They're all mighty warriors. And they're going to come through your land. And these fortified cities you're trusting in, you're counting on, they're going to destroy them with a sword. They won't slow them down. They certainly won't stop them. However... He speaks of the word of his judgment, the instrument of his judgment, but he also speaks here of the limitation of his judgment. We've already seen this in Jeremiah, and the Lord speaks of it here again. Look at verse 18. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. His judgment is real, it will be thorough, it will be frightening, but it will not be final. He will not make a complete end. In fact, he's already uh, mentioned that back in verse 10. I will not make a full end. I will not make a full end of you. And he didn't. When the Babylonians came and took Jerusalem, they took uh, many of the leaders away to Babylon and held them in captivity there. They left many people in the land to work the land, to continue to occupy the land there. Not everybody was taken away. Uh, And those who were in Babylon eventually, after about 70 years, did return back to uh, what was left of Jerusalem and began the rebuilding effort that you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. So the Lord's judgment, though terrifying, was ultimately limited. It was not a complete eradication of his people. But it certainly was a severe, severe mercy, uh, the judgment that he brought upon them. So you've seen God's challenge, the failure to produce anything resembling righteousness in the land, and therefore the announcement of God's judgment. But then this last section uh, is, 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 in a sense, a curious one, because it speaks to us of God's amazement, uh, almost bewilderment, if you will. Now, certainly God ultimately knows what's going on in the hearts of people. Uh, And yet, it's expressed here in a human way, as God looks out on his people and just sort of shakes his head in, in utter amazement. Look at verse 20. First of all, he's amazed at their rebellion. He's amazed at their rebellion against the against his being, against his majesty, against this glorious God who is theirs. Look at verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. 
God is amazed that as, as magnificent, as powerful as he is, as the creator, the one who, is, who causes order in the world, and the sea, certainly uh, the boundaries of the sea, the boundaries of the land, in and of itself is significant, but the sea uh, was symbolic of chaos. You know, we, we saw last time how the Lord spoke of his judgment in terms of reversing the order of creation and uh, reducing everything to being uh, empty. Uh, void, uh, disorganized. And the sea was emblematic of that chaos. In other words, God preserves the order of this universe, separating the water from the land, disorder and chaos from organization and structure. And yet they don't fear him. Uh, they just go their own way. They're, they have a stubborn and rebellious heart. Amazement at the rebellion against his goodness. Look at verse 24. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. You see, God's amazed at their rebellion against God in spite of all of his goodness to them, providing for them, caring for them. We think back over their whole history as you read about it in the Old Testament, that they would that they would rebel against such goodness is uh is staggering to God. It's amazing to him that they would rebel against so magnificent a being, so uh magnanimous and gracious and good a being. So he's amazed at their rebellion in spite of who God is. He's he's amazed also here at their cruelty. Verse 26. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they've become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as these? As this? They're, they're cruel. They, uh, they, they, they get their way into power through trickery and deceit and using people. And once in power, they only serve themselves. They have no regard for justice. They have no regard for the fatherless. They have no regard for the rights of the needy. And again, God reaches the conclusion in, in this, this dialogue with Jeremiah. Should I not judge a people such as this? Am I not right to bring judgment down upon them and avenge myself on a nation such as this? A cruel people, a rebellious people. God's also amazed at their blindness. Look at verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets... Prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. Now that's pretty bad. And later in Jeremiah, we'll see where Jeremiah has some run-ins with the authorities and with false prophets, the kinds of things that they were saying. The prophets, the false prophets, are prophesying lies. They're saying things that just aren't true, that are contrary to what God has spoken. And the priests rule in accord with this false information, the lies that the false prophets are speaking. And even worse, look at verse uh, 31 again, second part of the verse. My people love to have it so. People love falsehood. 
They love a government that's based on falsehood. It's the sheer blindness. God's amazed. The prophets are prophesying lies. The priests rule according to their lives. And the people are pleased with it. That's what they want. That's what they like. Wickedness from the top down. Wickedness from the religious leaders. Wickedness from the prophets. Why? Why do the people like that? They like it because it fits their fallen, sinful, rebellious nature. We love our sin. And we love when people are willing to confirm us in our sin, to affirm us for our sin. And so God's amazed at their blindness. We see what God sent Jeremiah to find here. Just one good man, Jeremiah could not find. Even if Jeremiah had extended his search beyond the walls of Jerusalem to all Judah, even if he had extended his search to the entire world, And if Jeremiah were somehow able to extend his search to travel up and down the corridors of time, he would have looked in vain. Paul summarizes it succinctly in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You see, that's the divine assessment, not just of Jerusalem, but of humanity. For one righteous man, God would pardon his people. For lack of that man, divine judgment would fall ultimately not just on Jerusalem, but on all humanity. Jeremiah never found that man. But what Jeremiah could not find, God himself has supplied. Jesus is the man of righteousness. Jesus is the man of truth. For the sake of Jesus, who provided for us righteousness in this life, atonement for our sins in his death, God will pardon his people. He will pardon all who by faith take refuge in Jesus. You see, this chapter ends with a haunting question. After all that's been said, it comes down to this. But what will you do when the end comes? They love their sin. They love their wickedness. They rebelled against God who had been so good to them, this magnificent and glorious God. And that's fine, God says. But he asked, what will you do when the end comes? Well, for the Christian, the answer is clear. When the end comes, we'll be thanking God for all eternity that he provided the man. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that in our own hearts, we are really no different from the people of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. Father, left to ourselves, we go our own way, we rebel against you, we make ourselves our God, we indulge in all kinds of sin. But Father, we thank you that you've provided the man, Christ Jesus, the one who is righteousness personified, the one who is truth embodied. Father, we thank you that because he obeyed you, because he died for our sins, that you pardon your people, and that you receive us to yourself.
We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.